Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 94 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is how to conduct a sanctions risk assessment. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. And before we get started, two points. First, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star rating. Second, my law firm, the Volkoff Law Group, provides assistance and counseling on compliance with Department of Treasury's OFAC regulations, Department of Commerce Export Administration regulations, and State Department's ITAR regulations. We assist companies in reviewing specific transactions, implementing effective compliance programs, and responding to agency requests for information or to an enforcement action. We've helped a number of companies to conduct voluntary disclosures, audits, and internal investigations as needed. We're very familiar with existing sanctions programs involving Iran, Cuba, Russia, Venezuela, and other countries. If interested in our trade compliance services, please contact me at mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Well, today we turn to uh, another issue under OFAC's new framework uh, guidance for sanctions compliance programs. And here we want to take a look at risk assessments. And perhaps this is per the, the most um, aggressive or really the most in terms of prescriptive requirements uh, with regard to the new compliance framework. OFAC's uh, new approach, I think, reflects its uh, aggressive enforcement programs. And I'm going to weave in some of the those enforcement actions that sort of informed some of these uh, requirements. So, and in recognition, I think, of the importance of various economic sanctions programs, uh, particularly Iran, North Korea, and Venezuela, OFAC has laid out some important markers. So to address the risk assessment element, I always start with what were the general requirements that OFAC outlined in its framework. And these are pretty three ideas that are pretty basic, but nonetheless uh, start to frame the risk assessment issue for us. Uh, risk assessment has to consist of a, quote, holistic review of the organization from top to bottom and assess its touch points to the outside world. Uh, two, the organization conducts an OFAC risk assessment in a manner and with a frequency that adequately accounts for the potential risks. Three, as appropriate, the risk assessment will be updated to account for any apparent violations, systemic deficiencies that are identified uh, in the routine course of business. Now let's turn to some of the prescriptive elements because it's in this area that I uh, see there's the most work for people to do with regard to the risk assessment. The scope of a risk assessment, in my view, has to mirror the breadth of enforcement risks, and the enforcement risks for OFAC have gone up significantly. Not that you will be detected and prosecuted, but that the where they're drawing the lines in terms of what is a violation and what is not has clearly been pushed out to not the limit, but it's certainly been pushed out in a more aggressive way by OFAC. So in keeping with that, analysis, a risk assessment now has to include assessment of, and we have basically four separate categories, one, customers, supply chain, intermediaries, and counterparties, two, the products and services it offers, including how and where such items fit into other 
financial or commercial products, services, networks, or systems. Three, the geographic locations of the organization, as well as its customers, supply chain, intermediaries, and counterparties. And four, potential merger and acquisitions, especially those involving non-US companies or corporations. Each of these risk areas correspond to specific enforcement risks, like I've mentioned. The implication of this list, however, is far-reaching, especially with regard to the company's supply chain, uh, as well as its products and services, which are exported, re-exported by a third party, or included by a foreign manufacturer in a product which is ultimately then resold. Um, and of course, we have to have a broad geographic location assessment, but that makes total sense given uh, the nature of uh, sanctions. Now, to frame the risk assessment, I sort of start with a visual, which is the organization in the center, and we focus on two distinct chains or channels. First, goods and, ser goods and services that come from the company and go through the distribution chain eventually to the customer and then draw a line going into the, the company, which would be the vendor or supplier chain, those uh, supplies, materials, services that go into the company are inputs for purposes of producing what comes out in the distribution chain. So within each of those two distinct categories, we have to initially determine how much business the company conducts, either customers or vendors or suppliers, in a country that is in close proximity to a sa sanctioned country. The language of this close proximity is something that comes from enforcement language. So uh, uh, countries that are, or areas that are in close proximity to a sanctioned country, for example, Cuba, may be Mexico. Uh, for Iran, maybe the UAE and Dubai. For uh, North Korea, it's going to be parts of China. So uh, and in Design, and in taking a look at this geography, um, how much revenue and how much uh, money is either made or spent uh, by distributors and customers and vendors and suppliers. In addition, another sort of broad requirement is, uh, and that has to inform our risk assessment, is the onboarding process. The organization has to develop a sanctions risk rating for customers, customer groups, or account relationships based upon a due diligence process and independent research conducted by the organization at the initiation of the customer relationship. This information will then guide the timing and scope of future due diligence efforts. So now we have a requirement. You can't just screen with a yes, no, black, white, whatever. We also have to conduct independent research, which can come through a questionnaire or some kind of information portal uh, that is used by your organization. And there have to be then sanctions risk ratings for these particular uh, relationships. And then that has to guide the timing and scope of future due diligence, as well as, uh, I would argue, monitoring and controls. So let's start first, though, with talking about uh, the distribution channel, distributors, customers, and how product gets to uh, particular uh, end users um, and, and in what fashion. So some of the questions we need to look at are, 
Our third-party business parties, partners use to distribute or resell the company's products or services? And if so, we need to examine the ability of third-party distributors to resell the products to prohibited customers or countries. In other words, what's the risk of that? Um, do we have, for example, distributors who, uh, who, ser who basically sell, resell our product uh, into uh, some prohibited country because they're not su subject to OFAC or uh, into areas that are closely proximate to uh, some of these pro uh, prohibited areas? Then we also have to look at re-exportation risks. In other words, which, uh, in other words, the ability of a distributor to take that product, re-export it, the ability of a foreign manufacturer to take our product, incorporate it, let's say they're an OEM, incorporate it into their product, and then ultimately sell that product to uh, a prohibited entity or prohibited country. In this process now, uh, in one of the first places where the case law and the regulations, um, particularly for Iran and Cuba, uh, include aggressive language uh, for the enforcement of responsibility for re-exportation risks and your organization's liability for the re-exporting of products from a distributor, let's say, to somebody in Iran or to a sub-distributor who in turn distributes to Iran. Uh, and the reason that this, this comes up is because of, uh, and the reason that I emphasize it, is because of the recent Epsilon case uh, which uh, related to third-party distributors. Companies have to take steps that ensure that their third-party distributors do not re-export items from the U.S. to a prohibited country, such as Iran or North Korea. And such risks are particularly acute with regard to re-exports to Iran, usually involving closely proximate areas like Dubai, which is not far from Iran, and it's a commercial center, and there's a lot of commercial activity that occurs there. Trading companies are quite prevalent in the Dubai area. But in any event, the Middle East, for sure, is an area that you need to look at and look at in your uh, profile. So let's go down some important questions for each, for your risk assessment. For each distributor, if they are close to a prohibited country, they have to be assessed as high risk depending upon the level of revenue and the extent to which the company has contractual provisions requiring OFAC compliance, written assurances by end-user certification certificates, and auditing capabilities for end-user customers. For each customer, if we're just selling to end-users, they have to be identified and checked for compliance with OFAC and the potential for diversion risk, whether they are, in fact, the real party in interest. Third, does the company's due diligence review include the following minimum elements for its, let's say, distributor? A business justification, a completion of a questionnaire, hopefully through a, a platform where it's typed in or provided by the uh, third-party candidate through your procurement function or whatever, uh, disclosure of beneficial owners of a third party uh, have to be uh, also uh, looked at. 
confirmation of lack of government ownership for obvious reasons, uh, confirmation of absence of a government official or close family member to a government official in terms of involvement because you may have they may be SDNs, existence of an adequate compliance program that the distributor themselves has, participation or willingness to participate in a training program and their willingness to agree to contractual representations to mitigate risks and absence of prior allegations, let's say, of bribery, sanctions, AML, or other legal violations. Next question, does the company, your company, screen the third party through a database vendor that identifies, obviously, corruption risks? I mean, while you're screening, you might as well be checking for all of this. Sanction status, anti-money laundering risks, and any other legal or reputational risks. Finally, do any of your third-party business partners distribute any of the company's products or provide services to other third parties or customers in or close proximity to a sanctioned country, Iran, Russia, Venezuela, Syria, North Korea. So let's go back now and take a look at Epsilon just on distributor risks because this case underscores the distributor risks for you if you maintain third-party distributors. A party can be held, in other words, your company can be held liable for a shipment of goods to a third party that is in turn sold to a prohibited party or country, such as Iran, when it knows of such plans to reship or has reason to know. That's the killer language, reason to know of such a shipment. More significantly, under, under Epsilon, OFAC does not need to establish that the shipment in fact was sent to Iran. The offense is completed at the time the company or an actor at the company has reason to believe that the shipment will be sent to an Iranian destination. This is obviously a broad and troubling area of liability. The reason to know requirement can be established through a variety of circumstantial evidence, including course of dealing, general knowledge of the industry or customer preferences, working relationship between the parties, or other criteria that OFAC has said is far too numerous to enumerate. In the Epsilon case, they looked at the website of the distributor and found evidence that the distributor, in fact, sells uh, its products, the company's products, the U.S. company's products, to Iran. As a result of this framework, companies have to conduct due diligence and document appropriate assurances that the third party is not intending to ship the goods to Iran. And a compliance program has to build in these controls to mitigate trade compliance risks. Now, further complicating this issue is the fact that I mentioned that manufacturers often sell products to foreign manufacturers, OEMs, who then take U.S. product, use it to produce a product containing the U.S. product, and depending upon the extent of the foreign manufacturer's ultimate use of the U.S. origin product, in other words, how important is it to the overall eventual uh, service that's provided, which could be in a network-type system or in a, uh, a product-type service like, for example, they, you pro provide a cooling system and the company uh, in the foreign manufacturer makes a car out of it or a truck out of it. Obviously, you can then, the U.S. manufacturer can be liable for the foreign manufacturer's ultimate product sale to an otherwise U.S. prohibited customer or country. 
So this can raise, obviously, a number of nightmare scenarios for U.S. companies that have to be, and it has to be looked at as part of your um, risk assessment. So you need to look at, does the company sell its products or services to customers who, in turn, re-export the company's products or use the service in the provision of a greater service, like a network-type service? Does the company export its products, which are then included in the manufacturing of another product by a foreign company, which obviously in turn then sells the manufactured product to international customers? Does the foreign manufacturing company re-export the product containing the U.S. origins product to any prohibited countries or countries in close proximity to a prohibited country? And if yes, which countries are nearby countries? And you obviously have to dig into that as part of the risk assessment. So that's kind of the distribution and customer chain. Now we're going to talk about the new paradigm relating to supply chain liability and why companies are now going to be under a situation that requires supply chain audits. And we have to start with the ELF Cosmetics case because that was a case from last year where a U.S. company was found liable for the fact that a Chinese manufacturer was sourcing its products from North Korea, the eyelashes, even though the U.S. company had no knowledge of the Chinese company's sourcing location. ELF violated the North Korea sanctions by importing 156 shipments of false eyelash kits from two suppliers in China, that contained materials sourced by these suppliers from North Korea. The total value of the illegal shipments was about $4.4 million, and ELF had a non-existent or inadequate compliance program. ELF's violations and failure to act occurred as part of its supply chain risk management. ELF failed to discover that approximately 80% of all its false eyelash kits supplied by two of ELF's China-based suppliers contained materials from North Korea. Now, as noted by OFAC, um, ELF uh, ELF failed to exercise sufficient supply chain due diligence while sourcing products from a region that poses a high risk of connection to North Korea. To remediate, ELF had to implement supply chain audits that verify the country of origin of goods and services used in ELF products. They also had to adopt new procedures to require suppliers to sign certificates of compliance stating that they will comply with all U.S. export controls and trade sanctions, and they conducted an enhanced supplier audit that included verification of payment information, related to production materials and review of supplier bank statements. So now when we craft audit requirements for uh, our supply chain, we need to include verification uh, of such materials and review of their bank statements. As a consequence, in order now to meet OFAC expectations for risk assessments, organizations now have to assess their entire supply chain, identify risky operations that may be uh, operating from locations in close proximity to a prohibited country because they could be sourcing materials or services from that prohibited country, and organizations have to now push down OFAC compliance representations and audit procedures throughout their respective supply chains. So the first question to ask is, does the company do business in a country that ranks high on sanctions risks 
in close proximity to Iran, Russia, Cuba, North Korea, Syria, etc.? If yes, which countries are nearby countries? Two, does the company inquire of its vendors and suppliers whether they source any materials or services from business is in close proximity to a sanctioned country? Three, does the company maintain a formal policy and procedures to review and approve a new or to renew a vendor or supplier? If so, does the review include identification of business owners, meaning beneficial owners, identification of related companies and percentage of ownership, directors and officers, senior managers, financial qualifications, payment arrangements and banking relationships, and business references? Also, does the company screen the vendor, supplier, and entities and individuals identified above through a database vendor to identify sanctions risk? Finally, does the company include in its contracts or, and or purchase orders and or terms or conditions for purchase or supply with its vendors or suppliers appropriate contractual language to prohibit violation of OFAC sanctions? Okay, now let's turn to uh, the last risk area that's mentioned, which is uh, mergers and acquisitions. Uh, and OFAC's risk assessment requirement includes a specific factor for potential mergers and acquisitions, focusing primarily on those involving non-U.S. companies or corporations. In other words, if you're a U.S. company and acquire non-U.S. companies or non-U.S. operations, you have to make sure that uh, they are not engaging or continuing to engage in transactions that were previously permitted but now are prohibited by virtue of your U.S. ownership. Uh, and so you want to make sure that you have a procedure by which uh, to assess that potential risk where your company, let's say, is an aggressive act acquirer of other uh, uh, companies uh, overseas. So one case example of how this came up was Cole Morgan, which paid a uh, civil penalty of roughly $13,000 for six violations of the Iran sanctions program. And their violations were basically between 2013 and 2015, a, a company that they acquired continued to service machines containing products that were located in Iran and provided products, parts, or services uh, that were valued at approximately $14,000 with knowledge that they were uh, obviously going to Iran end users. So Cole Morgan acquired the company Elsom, and that's uh, in early 2013, and, there, and that was a Turkish company, and thereby made Elsom subject to the Iran sanctions program. Despite extensive efforts, efforts to prohibit and block Iran transactions, Elsom employees continued to deal with Iran customers and hid such activities from Cole Morgan. Elsom, uh, basically, with full knowledge of the prohibitions, uh, continued to provide services to Iran. Uh, they even went to the point of threatening to fire employees if they refused to travel to Iran and provide the services. Um, and then they also falsified corporate records and listed the travel as vacation rather than business-related. So as a result of this, if your company acquires a foreign-based company that was not subject to OFAC, you have to conduct a risk assessment that focuses on two distinct issues identifying at the newly acquired company, let's say overseas in Turkey, for example, 
who their customers are, who the third parties are that they have who deal with otherwise prohibited customers and countries. And the same inquiry except the focus is on, again, on countries in close proximity and regions in close proximity to prohibited countries. Now let's turn to screening and due diligence and internal controls. An effective uh, sanctions, control, uh, sanctions compliance program has to include internal controls, including policies and procedures, in order to identify, interdict, escalate, report as appropriate, and document uh, sanctions compliance activity. Policies and procedures have to be implemented and reviewed as part of the assessment. The organization has appointed personnel. They have to appoint personnel for integrating the policies and procedures into the daily operations of the business. This process includes relevant business units and, and is a way through communications, training, and understanding to confirm that employees understand the policies and procedures. Also under this element, to the extent an information technology solution, like a screening technology, hopefully on a on a platform, not through a standalone cloud call, uh, you know, entry system. Uh, this has to factor into the organization's internal controls. The organization has to select and calibrate that solution in a manner that is appropriate to address uh, the organization's risk profile and compliance needs, and the organization has to routinely test the solution to ensure effectiveness. So, in reviewing and conducting a risk assessment to the extent you're using an information technology, how and why was it selected, how is it calibrated, and in what relation to the risk profile is it done so in relation to the risk profile, and if it's done in relation to the risk profile, how is that carried out, and how does the organization, uh, if it does at all, routinely test the technology to ensure that it's accurate. Finally, the OFAC framework, and I mentioned this early on, requires companies to develop a sanctions risk rating for customers, customer groups, or account relationships based upon a due diligence process and independent research conducted by the organization at the initiation of the customer relationship. This element requires more than just a simple yes or no screening system. Uh, and companies have to invest time and develop a risk-based scoring system to apply for risk-ranking purposes. In doing so, and in conducting the uh, risk assessment, we need to identify, does the company have a sanctions risk rating, rating process? How is it developed? In other words, is it developed just simply through the use of the screening technology? Is there independent research conducted by the organization at the initiation of the customer relationship, and how is then that factored into the overall uh, scoring system and the risk-based scoring system for risk ranking purposes uh, in the design of ultimately controls that are surrounding the identification, elevation, and resolution of due diligence and independent research for purposes of making a determination of sanctions risks and how to mitigate those risks. So those are all important inquiries that have to be included uh, in this as well. 
Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At Ethical Companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn about more of our, about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkoflaw.com. You can always contact me by email address at Let us know how we can help you achieve your